All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. All right, Virginia Democrats have accused uh, the Yunkin administration of being homophobic, transphobic, and a bunch of students have walked out of high schools all over the Commonwealth over the last uh, couple days in order to protest his new policy, which requires the school to inform parents if their students suddenly start identifying as a different gender while they're in school. Now, the left will just say this was a spontaneous action by motivated students. However, there seems to be evidence to the contrary. We're going to discuss that, but we're also going to discuss the weaponization of the term phobic and how it has affected this entire debate. All of that and more coming up. Thank you for joining us on Making the Argument. We appreciate you being here for this episode. If you haven't already, please go down to the description of this podcast on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening and join us in our volley chat to discuss this after the episode. Thank you all for being here, and let's get right to it. All right. So we're going to go over to our, our first uh, first thing here. It's from the Virginia Democrats' Twitter page. Governor Yunkin messed with the wrong generation, and it shows pictures from uh, Hilton High School, John Lewis High School, there's another high school there, and then Culpeper High School, which is actually in my county, in my district. And uh, they're using this in order to try to demonstrate that students were just furious about the Yunkin administration engaging in what they classified as anti-LGBTQ and transphobic behavior. So what was this policy? Well, it had a lot to do with things like, you know, making sure that you use the right bathroom. It had to do with making sure that, you know, boys aren't competing on girls' sports teams. It had to do with things, and this is what really upset a lot of people, is that if students are starting to identify a certain way, behave in a certain way at school, that, you know, the teachers are not supposed to hide this from the parents. The parents are supposed to be engaged in this process. And, of course, this was all classified as being horrible anti-LGBTQ uh, behavior. And I pointed out on Twitter, I said, well, I said, what this is actually demonstrating, I said, what these students have inadvertently demonstrated in many of our minds, is that this is being pushed within our school system. And every time we talk about it being pushed within our school system, we get told that that's not true, that nobody's doing that. And I had a ton of people on the left come back and say, you know what, these kids know how to think independently. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. And yet you send them to school for education. I mean, if they've, if they've got it all figured out and they're not being influenced anyone, what, why, are you, why are you doing that? Like, you, you don't think any of this is being influenced? Well, let's go to our next article. Because it turns out, uh, yeah, yeah. In fact, uh, what's what's fascinating about this article is the student group staging the walkouts, which was known as the Go Down, uh, I think it's the Pride Liberation Group. Uh, this same group, right, um, 
Staging the walkouts over Virginia trans guidance has also pushed pro-abortion and gun reform bills funded by Democrats. Uh, in fact, the Pride Liberation Project, an allegedly student-run organization, let's go ahead and assume it is, hosted nearly 100 walkouts across Virginia to protest Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin's updated model policies for dealing with transgender students. The policy mandates educators must inform parents about a child's perceived shift in gender identity at school. Now, scroll down a little bit more. Students uh, classified this as being anti-queer. Oh, here we go. Money for protests and lobbying efforts for the Pride Liberation Project appeared to come, at least in part, from the Democratic donor hub, Act Blue. Now, to give you an idea, Act Blue is pretty much what every single major Democrat campaign committee uses to fundraise. Like The, the, the Republican alternative is win red. So I, I want you to think about this. If there was a bunch of student walkouts over gun control, or a bunch of pro-life student walkouts, and you found out that Win Red had been a large financer of the different groups that were sponsoring this. I, I doubt the Democrats would come to the conclusion that oh, this was just a this was a spontaneous movement. No influence or support from outside organizations. Just spontaneous movement. These kids just thinking for themselves, who want to protect their peers. Well, comedian Tim Young brought up something interesting. He said, "Wow, th th this is all just spontaneous and all about wanting to protect their peers." I must have missed the walkout where a girl was raped and allowed in public school bathroom. And then the, the student who claimed to be trans, who raped her in a bathroom, and then was quietly moved to another school while there was an investigation going on, quietly moved to another school, were immediately reoffended. Did, did anybody see a massive student walkout in, in solidarity with the girl that had been raped? Did anybody see a, a massive walkout in protest on a school board and a superintendent essentially kind of being really, really quiet at a school board when this question was asked and deliberately misrepresenting what was going on. Anybody, any walkout for that? No. In fact, there were plenty of instances where there was actually um, an effort to basically victim blame yeah. the girl and, and come up with reasons why this was her fault or why she was invalid or why her claims invalid. Yeah. And remember, her father was, you know, a domestic terrorist. Oh, yeah. No, yeah. For those of you who don't remember, this is the exact instance in Loudoun where you saw that you saw this father being like drug out by the police at a school board meeting. This is one of the big things that pushed this this whole narrative in the mainstream media that, oh, my gosh, it's all these out of control, bigoted conservatives showing up. This is why we need the DOJ and potentially the National Guard. This is not hyperbole. This is what the National School Board Association was requesting from the White House to use counterterrorism legislation in order to target these parents. And then again, there was one place that actually came out and said, let's let's ask this father why he did this. And that's when the story broke that his daughter had been raped in a bathroom. And the whole question, what set this father off at the school board meeting was a member of the school board asked, I believe it was the superintendent, I could be wrong on that, but asked somebody, is there any instance, any instance of an assault taking place with a trans student using the bathroom? And he said, not to my knowledge. Do you know why he got away with saying that? Because technically the student hadn't been convicted of assault yet. Hmm. So no, no, not to my knowledge. Never, wow. never once happened. And this father is sitting there going, my daughter was literally raped. But no, no, the school board didn't want to hear that. He was disruptive. I do think that they um, take great effort to protect the LBGTQ community from stigma. They, they want to get away from stigmatizing. It's the same reason why Netflix just removed the LBGTQ label from Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. 
And it's because they don't want anyone to think that there might be bad people who also occupy this fear. And, and that's the thing is they're like, Oh, we just don't want anything that will push that stigma. We've come so far and we've tried so much to get rid of that stigma. So basically they're going to suppress truth in order to fake as though there is nobody unvirtuous in this community. Well, and, and what's interesting about this is that I, I can already, I can already sense what's starting to happen right now in the Twitterverse and whatnot. And anybody else that's going to watch this on the left, um, because as soon as we say, look, we think the schools are pushing this, the schools are pushing a particular approach to gender ideology, to queer theory, right? There's a reason why a student is out there going, this is anti-queer, right? That stems from queer theory, which right. stems from critical theory, which stems from the Frankfurt School, right? This isn't, this isn't by accident. Which comes from Marxism. Which comes from Marxism. And, and if, you look at, if you look at what a lot of the teachers are, are going through right now with respect to getting their teaching credential when it comes to, they have to get their degree, they have to get their, you know, their, they get their teaching degree, they go through their credentialing process. Every time we say, yeah, this is, this is being pushed, it's even pushed in one of two ways. Either it's being pushed directly in the classroom or it's being pushed through the process where you are, all of your teachers coming in are being taught this is the way to think about these issues. And they're not being taught this is one of the ways to think about these issues. They're being taught this is the way to think about these issues. And every time we say that, like, that's ridiculous. None of that's going on. Because this is what we always hear from the left. Nobody's teaching CRT. Nobody's pushing, you know, gender ideology or this queer theory. This is a theory. problem, this or is, this is a solution in search of a problem. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's go to the next clip here. Let's go to the next uh, tab we got up here. This is called Best Practices for Serving LGBTQ Students. We had some trouble getting some of this up. So I want to go ahead and I want to go ahead and talk about what they mean by this. All right. So this comes from uh, Teaching Tolerance. And Teaching Tolerance and Learning for Justice and all this used to be a part of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Again, to give you an idea, Southern Poverty Law Center listed Dr. Ben Carson as an extremist. Right? So they're they're wild. So so clearly, clearly this is a completely nonpartisan, you know science-based approach to everything. All right, so what's interesting is you start to look at what they're pushing here. Um, and some of it has, you know, everything from, you know, you know, fairly innocuous stuff where it's just talking about, you know, understanding rights. Like, obviously, you know, LGBT students can't be discriminated against, right? And, and I think that, I think most of us, you know, when, when you look at how the LGBT community gained steam in the popular culture, it was largely around this idea of, Look, we just don't want to be we don't want to be punished by the law. Right. We we don't want to be we don't want to have like, you know, special restrictions against us because of this. And a lot of people looked at that and said, "Yeah, that seems fair. I may not agree with what you're doing or I may not, but I don't think the government should punish you for it." And and that seemed very sympathetic. The problem is when you think about it, nobody wants to just be tolerated, right? They don't want to just be tolerated. They want to be accepted. And, and if possible, they want to be celebrated. So you look at this classroom culture, here's what they're saying, creating an inclusive environment with words. And it was creating an LGBT inclusive classroom culture begins with a readiness to answer questions or facilitate appropriate conversation. I don't know what they mean by that around LGBTQ issues in order to facilitate sensitive, productive conversations with students in class or one on one. Consider these steps. Be willing to learn essential terms. Young people today have a large vocabulary with which they can articulate their identities. That vocabulary may be unfamiliar, but understanding these words can open doors for educators to become more effective allies to LGBTQ students. This is nothing that's interesting is that we always talk about this ally component because ally right. is not, ally is not, hey, you know, you, you are free to live your life the way you want. Ally is, I'm going to support what you're doing. 
outspoke, be outspoken about. You're, you're an outspoken or, or supporter. advocate for. This means, for example, knowing the difference between biological sex, gender identity, and gender expression between cisgender and transgender, between asexual and pansexual. I don't so, think anybody understands that. Keep in mind. Even they, the people they, who claim it. And they offer a, a full list here. And then they have model inclusive pronoun use, right? Use the singular they. Decentralize cisgender identity by stating your own pronouns. Um, or uh, Yeah, yeah. So they, they go through all this stuff. Um, for, facilitate conversations about identity with care. Uh, challenge gender norms through classroom practices. Now, you might be saying, Nick, okay, I get it. This is what Learning for Justice wants. This is what you know, uh, Southern Poverty Law Center wants. But this isn't official policy for the school system. Oh, oh, wait a second. Until you go to this next one where I don't think we got it up there, but I've got it on my thing right here. It's Equity for Virginia. All right, so this was the Department of Education.Virginia.gov, Ed Equity VA, right? This was this was on there. This was up there, and this was something that was, was part of the Democrats' agenda in Virginia when they controlled the House, the Senate, and the governor's office for two years. Now, I'm going to read off some of this. It was five strategies for supporting LGBTQ plus students. Provide ongoing professional development for teachers, counselors, administrators, and support staff on how to best support LGBTQ plus students and families. Ensure the curriculum, especially family life curriculum, is inclusive and provides positive portrayals of LGBTQ people. Implement inclusive policies for all students using transgender student chosen names that includes accountability when these policies are not followed. So again, I'm going to punish the teacher if you don't use the student's chosen name. But I don't got to inform the parents. In fact, I should probably keep it from the parents. All right, five, ensure that visible support for LGBTQ plus people such as flags, stickers, posters is permissible and that LBG, uh, LGBTQ plus resources are available for students and families. And then when you look at it, additional resources, where does it send you? It sends you to teaching tolerance. So this is what they were, this is what they were sending out to teachers as part of required training they were saying, go to these places to get additional curriculum and teacher's aides. They were saying, we want you to actively go on there and push the flags out. We want you to actively go out there and put the stickers out. We want you, we want you to be proactive in what you're doing. You're not there to essentially say, hey, no student is going to be like adversely harmed or discriminated against. You are there to actively push a particular way of thinking about these issues. The other thing that they... they uh, put a uh, link to is JLSEN. So that's also known as, uh, there's also, it's part of the group GLAD. Go ahead and go to that next link. All right, and it's interesting. You go to GLAD, it says 20% of millennials identify as LGBTQ. Can I just point out, please stop referring to Zoomers as millennials, people. Like, <laughs> Millennials are in their, in their 30s 40s. and 40s yeah. now. Yeah. Like, I'm, I am one of the youngest millennials Hamilton and I are are the last of the millennials, and we're in our late twenties. Yeah, like they're Zoomers, not well, millennials. Well, the other thing, Bill Bill Maher also <laughs> pointed this out. He goes, you, "You're going to have to explain to me how it is that, you know, the trans community or or the LGBT community yeah. made up two percent right. of the population, and now in some schools in California specifically, twenty seven percent of students are identifying as LGBTQ. And then again, the issue here is." Let's say for a second you're, you're totally fine with all of this. Let's say for a second that you think this is a good thing. This is a, a positive thing. Here's my question. When we say, hey, the, the school's pushing this stuff, and you immediately come out and say, no, they're not, and then we say, really? Because here was the official policy from the Virginia Department of Education. Here was the, the very places that they were telling teachers, you will go here to get your – we want you to go here in order to get this stuff, and we want you to implement these policies. We want you to actively – push 
a pro-LGBTQ agenda. And when we say that's what they're going on, no, they're not. I got a question for you, Nick. Yeah. Let's say you were a superintendent of a school, and it w- you felt like it was your job to create an environment where every one of your students could learn, get an education, and do what they needed to do day in, day in and day out. And you had a statistic show up on your desk showing that 20% of the students identified as LGBT. Well, what do you do in that situation? Well, I, again, the question is, is why is this the role or responsibility of the school? Okay. So now they're going to come back and say, well, then why is Governor Youngkin requiring them to say something? It's like, because you you have had an active policy where you have been you have been pushing a certain view of this, and now we're seeing a significant uptick in the well, number of students that are identifying as this, you don't get to then play pretend that that doesn't have a potentially right. influential you know, There's so. also this adversarial relationship between parents and teachers right now, um, or school systems right now. Talk which us is, through that. What does that look like? Well, I think it seems to me like they have a situation where they don't want to have to notify any parents because um, they're afraid parents are going to abuse their kids. That's that's literally their reason for not yeah. wanting to talk to parents about this. So lit- they could just... The kid could just be afraid to talk to their parent about whatever they're they're going through in their mind, um, and they'll treat it as though, oh, this kid's going to get abused if they say something. And it's it's not that. Every kid, I mean, gosh, when I was in high school or junior high, I did a few things here and there where I was really scared to tell my mom, you know? I mean, come on. you're Every well, student, every kid goes through that. And so it's this idea that, Parents are inherently bad, and and we have to unteach everything that parents have taught. And um, parents are just, you know, we have to make sure parents don't abuse their kids. And I, I look at this and go, if you really think a parent is abusing their child, I mean, for real, why aren't you doing something about right. that? Well, and, and I think what this, so I, I, I was talking to a teacher and, and I understand. So from the teacher's perspective, I can understand some of their frustration with uh, the policy because it, it becomes the question of how do you know when someone's violated the policy? So for instance, if you overhear one of your students saying something to another student, do you have to immediately call up the student's parents and report that? Right. Like, so I, I, I don't I, think it was a reporting requirement. Well, no, no, no. There was, there was stuff within, there was stuff within the Yunkin policy where it was like par- it, parents had to, so like, I, I get I get some of the... Um, it was in order for the official... I read this. Yeah. It, in order for the official po- uh, official pronoun to change and the official name to change yeah. and to be referred to as, um, as whatever it is the child wanted to be referred yeah. to, it needed to be submitted in writing no, no. from the parent. And so... It couldn't just be done at school without the parents' knowledge. And and, and I'm acknowledging that. What I'm saying is that initially when people were talking about putting together this policy, the idea was, is like, what am I, like, if you're a teacher, think about this for a second. Let's say you're a teacher and you agree that some of this is problematic and you're not trying to hide anything from parents. But the question is, is when do you become responsible? And the Yunkin administration, like, like you just articulated, the Yunkin administration came up with a clear, you know, delineating mark here and it was we're, we're not saying that every time a, a one student talks to another student about something the teacher overhears that you're now on the hook to report this to the parents you know or, or you're going to get in trouble it's like no when the school system starts to actively change their 
policy of address or what bathrooms that are used or like that. When they start doing that with the student, they have to notify the parent or they have to get permission from the parent. Well, it's basically they're not allowed to do that unless it's come in through writing from the parent. And so and this it's, is the it's not about a teacher overhearing something. It's about I'm not allowed to do this yeah. until the parent has submitted this. And and that's the part where, again, what we're doing, and, and this is why the, the point you brought up earlier was so important, right? This is this idea, well, oh, well, some parents might not encourage this. Yeah. You're right. Some parents no, some might parents not encourage. some parents might abuse their kids. Some, well, no, no, it's, some parents might not. It's not even that. Like it's th- this is not just a concern about some parents might abuse their kids because as you articulated, if you're really concerned, if you have a legitimate concern that the kid's going to be abused, why aren't you contacting? You're a mandatory reporter. You're a mandatory reporter. No, it's the definition of abuse has changed. If I tell if I tell the parent that hey, did you know your? I just want to let you know your child at school is requesting to be identified as pansexual. And if the parent doesn't agree with that, the parent's like, okay, wait, thank you for letting me know. I need to have a, I need to have a talk with my child. I want to figure out what's going on. Oh, no, that's abuse. Mm-hmm. Because you're not, because now the parent isn't actively reinforcing whatever identity their child has chosen. Now, th- that's the abuse now. And this goes, in, so uh, this is the part where I, I think, let me make something really clear, because we're about to transition to the next point here. I'm certainly not advocating for you know, the the school system to actively be punishing LGBTQ students, students that identify that way. That's not the point here. And and a big part of the problem here is this is what happens when the government's running something. The government's running the education system predominantly for the vast majority of students, and now we all got to have these fights about, oh, well, what's the appropriate curriculum? What's the appropriate response? What's the appropriate bathroom? If dollars were following students, this wouldn't even nearly be the same issue because then parents could make their own choice, and now... You, you do what you think is best for your student. I'm going to do what's best for mine. But it's the left. It's the other side that says, no, no, no. We're going to decide what's best for your student because we think that if you don't reinforce your child's gender identity, or, or now we're moving in even to species identity, then you're abusing your child by, by not agreeing that, yes, they're a pansexual. Right? So that's, that's what they've done here. And the moment we say, you are absolutely pushing this, their response is, no, we're not. And then we show them, really? Because here's your official policy that you put on a government website. What's their response after that? Well, you're a bigot. Which is it? You're not doing it, or you are doing it, and we're just all bigots for noticing. Boy, this sounds familiar. Oh, my God. It's every Ben Shapiro talks about this all the time. They do something, and they celebrate it, and then you notice it, and they're like, why are you noticing it? That's not going on. How then you show you? them that it is going on, and they call you a bigot for not supporting it. It's like, if you were proud of it, you never would have denied what you were doing in the first place. And this goes into what is what is every parent that's going to have an issue with this sort of policy? What is every parent going to hear? You're homophobic or you're transphobic. Now, we're all hard, tired of hearing this term, but I want to do something that I haven't seen anybody else do yet. I haven't seen anybody else do this. Bring up the definition from Merriam-Webster's dictionary of what phobia is. Merriam-Webster phobia. Here we go. The definition. An exaggerated usually inexplicable or illogical fear of a particular object, class of objects, or situation. Don't you find it interesting that if your view of sexuality does not correspond with the LGBTQ view of sexuality, you're called phobic. You are then declared of having an exaggerated, usually inexplicable or illogical fear of a particular object, class of objects, or situation. 
Now, I'm going to go to one other thing here real quick. Is a, What is a phobia? And this actually comes from John Hopkins Medicine. And it says, a phobia is an uncontrollable, irrational, and lasting fear of a certain object, situation, or activity. This fear can be so overwhelming that a person may go to great lengths to avoid the source of this fear. One response can be a panic attack. This is a sudden, intense fear that lasts for several minutes. It happens when there is no real danger. So let me ask you something. Why is it if I say, I believe that sex was supposed to be for a man and a woman within the boundaries of marriage. I believe that. It's a, it's a part of my religious faith. I believe that when I look at this from like a lo- logical, practical standpoint, from a rational standpoint, I believe that this is, this is a morally um, effective way to look at this. And I believe that both for religious reasons and I believe it for practical reasons. Their response is, you're transphobic. You're homophobic. So right off the bat, what they're accusing me of having is an irrational fear. No, what it is is they've made a truth claim about sex. I have a different truth claim about sex. Now, nothing within my truth claim, nothing in my truth claim is therefore saying, if you don't agree with me, I want the government to come in and punish you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we have a different viewpoint on this. But if I disagree with their viewpoint, I have an irrational fear. Now think about that vernacular. Now think about the psychology of that within a classroom, within young students. If every time a student comes in, is like, well, you know, I was raised to believe that this is the appropriate area for sex between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage. It's not that you have a a different perspective, a different perspective, which, oh, by the way, has been shared by billions of people over thousands of years. It's you're phobic. You have an irrational fear or hatred. Well, who wants to be accused of having an irrational fear or hatred? But let me ask you something. How would you describe somebody that instantly jumps, instantly jumps to accusing another person of being irrational, uncontrollable, having a lasting fear, so overwhelming that you might go to great lengths to avoid the source or, or engage panic attacks, even though you've displayed none of those attributes? You haven't displayed irrationality. You haven't displayed an uncontrollable fear. Although uh, this is the same community that gets triggered by things and when, needs a safe split space so that they can go and finish out their panic attack. Well, and, and the thing, and the thing I want to be clear about here, right, is I'm not accusing, and, and this is the part where, where I'm differentiating, right? I'm not accusing of everybody that identifies as LGBTQ of behaving in this manner. No. I'm accusing woke people of behaving in this manner. It, it, is, it is woke elements, many of them move are heterosexual, right? That the moment you say, you know what? I understand that this is the truth claim of the LGBTQ, and I don't want to punish them for it, nor do I think the government should come in and prevent them from living the way they want, provided they don't infringe on the liberties of somebody else. But I, I don't agree. I, I, actually, I actually think it's supposed to be this way. The instant response from the woke community is, you're transphobic, you're homophobic. You're guilty of an irrational fear. An irrational, inexplicable fear. But it's not irrational, it's not fear, and it's not inexplicable. But when those claims are made in a school setting, any student that doesn't agree with that is bullied into either silence or into conforming. 
Well, and I, and I think because that, it, because once that's thrown around, now you have gone into this category of this evil person now. Well, and, the left, and no kid wants that. Yeah, the left wing response is going to be, well, that's how that's how kids who identified as LGBTQ felt. And I'm like, okay, I, I understand that. I understand the counterpoint that you're making. What I'm what I don't understand is why, if you think that was wrong, it's okay to implement now, as long as it's a different target. What I don't understand is, actually, I do understand. A couple things. I've got a question for you that I'm going to lead with, actually. Um, I don't think, and I have a feeling that there's many people that that would agree, that would listen to this podcast or listen to other conservatives talk about this and say, okay, we're talking about policies and procedures and stuff like that. But you know what? There's, We're not going to vote our way out of this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not going to legislate or issue court rulings out of our, you know, our way out of this problem. It, it's a cultural issue. And there's evidence of that in the statistics that we brought up earlier, right? So, for example, by the way, the the Virginia stuff, that's actually wrong. That's Gen Z is 20-something percent yeah. of them identify True. as LGBT. It's about 10% for millennials, which is still – scientifically, it's probably 2 to 3% actually. Yeah. So it's a cultural phenomenon that are that is pushing this to happen. And as Bill Maher pointed out, it's happening more in blue states than in, in redder states. In Ohio, those numbers are a lot lower than in yeah. California, which gets me to my point. So the left will go out there and they'll make these claims about how, you know, oh, well, this is naturally occurring, right? You know, that that all of these people, you know, it actually is 20-something percent actually identify as this. And this isn't, you know, an agenda being pushed. But at the same time, they will say you must affirm these kids or else they will commit suicide or harm themselves or whatever it is, right? Which begs the question – how could it actually be that a quarter of the population is inherently LGBTQ without even realizing it until somebody comes along to affirm them, but we must affirm them or else they're going to hurt themselves? Yeah. It, 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 but it then is, the, it the statistic of them hurting themselves actually goes up after they're affirmed. It contradicts itself. But the question that I've got is, is okay, we, we know that this is not organic, um, it's, but that doesn't mean that it's like centralized. I'm not trying to say that, you know, the Bilderbergs are coming oh, in yeah, and they're yeah, making, yeah. They're, they're, they're turning the freaking frogs gay. <laughs> like I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to suggest yeah. that. I'm trying to say that there's, there's things that can happen culturally where, um, remember when, um, who was it? Dr. Malone had that interview with, um, Joe Rogan and he yeah. came out with that phrase. Um, what was it called? Like, like psychosis or uh, ma- like, like mass popular psychosis or something. I like can't that. remember what the phrase is, but th- those at home that are listening will know what I'm talking about. Long story short, what he was trying to describe was a phenomenon whereby once you get enough people to start acting in a certain way or believing a certain thing, it can, it can it create a snowball effect, right? That, that, Without the direction of a single person pushing it, yeah. it moves society in a certain direction. Here's a good example. Mass formation psychosis. Yes. Here's a good example. You have a couple people. There was actually a um, video that went viral on Twitter a, a few days ago showing this. There was a bunch of people outside that were eating eating on the street, right? You know, They were outside a restaurant. They were sitting in chairs, in tables. They were eating on a street. And there was a couple of joggers that ran by them, like sprinting, sprinting through the tables. And suddenly... Everybody gets up and starts panicking and runs. Oh, I saw that. It was a CrossFit group, and they were running, 
And oh uh, yeah, there were there people eating on the going sidewalk. On. Yeah, and and it was a mass panic, and everybody just fled from their tables, and like stuff was falling down, and chairs were falling over. Them. It was like a, it was, it was j just like a mass route down Nick, the street. Nick, what's the first thing you would do if you were in that situation? If I saw a mass thing running there, if you were at the table eating and everybody just jumped up and started running, it would depend. It, it would depend. Like if I was with my family or whatnot, my first thing would be get my family, you know, out of there or whatnot. Or, but my my first reaction to all of that is, what is it? Right. You know, so if everyone's running that way, my first reaction is usually like, What's what is that? coming this way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And I want to know what it is. Um, but the thing is, is that there was nothing coming. Yeah. That's my point. Right. And so, like, there there were two people that were running down the street and then suddenly a panic and everybody flows out. And I feel like that that you've got so many examples of this, not just within the context of what we're talking about today, but to the point of of today's topic, I feel like that that is what's pushing more it's 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 just eventually it becomes large enough that it, it pushes more and more people to identify as this and let's be honest too if you're part of a demographic that you can't claim victimhood status because we now exalt victimhood status even made up victimhood status if you're not part of a demographic that you can inherently claim victimhood status because of things that you're born with or not born with either your skin color or your gender mm -hmm. or your ethnicity it's certain things that you don't have control over yeah What's the easiest way for you to claim victimhood status? Oh, yeah, you, LGBTQ. <laughs> so yeah. in, in places in America where we place such a huge emphasis on dividing people by oppressor versus oppressed classes and in making people feel guilty for things they have not done because of their status supposedly as being a member of the oppressor class, what's the easiest way for you to escape being part of the oppressor class? Oh, yeah. We, and and I feel like that that combined with some of the other stuff that I talked about is the reason that this is happening. But my my question to you is is that like okay, so we know why this is happening. How how do you how do you fix it? Because I don't I I really don't think that we can vote our way out of this problem. To well, be I, I so I go back to and and that's an that's an important point for two reasons. One, we we can demonstrate how um, how certain administrations and we can demonstrate how certain groups have have told teachers. This is what we want you to do in the classroom. Yeah. So when they tell us this isn't getting pushed in your schools, you can look back and be like, that's a lie. You're, you're either ignorant or you're lying, and neither one is a good you foundation pointed, for public you, policy. You show the yeah. evidence. Yeah, I, I, did this, I did this in a debate once. <clears throat> the other side is what you talked about before, and that is when, when culture is encouraging certain behaviors and it's discouraging other behaviors, they're doing that specifically because they want to see a transference from one activity to another activity. Mm -hmm. And like you said, like, like I had a, I was talking to a room full of people once and they were talking about like, you know, how, how could it be that 27% of a class is, you know, in Bay area, California is claiming to be, you know, trans or LGBTQ. And I said, the real question is why isn't it a hundred percent? And they looked at me weird. I said, well, think about it. You know, if you, <clears throat> because, because so much of the discussion that we have right now surrounding this whole concept of equity is based on this idea that there's oppressors and there's oppressed and the oppressors are bad and evil. What makes you an oppressor? Well, it used to be you had to actively engage in some sort of activity that was, you know, oppressive. Now you don't, you just have to resemble somebody that has done that. So the oppressor class is white. You're white. Oh my gosh, you're an oppressor. Oppressors are men. Now, if you're a white you're cisgendered men. male, yeah. oh my gosh, man, you just won the oppressor like Lottery. sweepstakes, yeah. right? You're you're the height of it. So, okay, let's say you're you're in that situation. How do you get out of being in the oppressor class? Because who wants to be in the oppressor class? Well, you could try being an ally, but that that's not going to change it, right? You're still an oppressor. You're just trying to make up for your past sins. 
Right? But the moment you say, oh, I'm, I'm this, I'm, I'm homosexual, I'm bisexual, I'm pansexual, I'm asexual, I'm trans, whatever it is, as soon as you that, you just immediately went from you're oppressive and you're bad to, gosh, you are brave. You've been exalted to victim status. You are brave and you are noble and you are now over in this area, which is the good area. Stunning and beautiful. Yeah. So <laughs> let's, let's say you're a parent and you don't have much of an option to pull your kids out of public school and you know use another means of education. What do you do in this situation? Well, look, there's there's two things that you can do. One is you you can actually understand what is going on in your kid's school. Sure. Um, because I, I, I hear a lot of people say, I, well, I don't have another option. First of all, I would ask you to reevaluate that. Because a lot of people, I think, have this idea that, well, I could never do that, or that's too difficult, or I don't have the time, or whatnot. I, I would, I, the first thing I like to ask people is, okay, how much, how much study and thought have you put into actually doing it before you've decided that you, what, you're incapable of What's step one? What's the first step? The step one of deciding whether or not you can pull your kids out of school? Yes. So obviously there's a financial component to that. But a lot of people have this idea that, well, if, if I homeschool my kids, I've got to be sitting there with them eight hours a day doing what the public school does. No, you don't. No, you don't at all. The bottom line is the public school teacher is, is mandated by the government to spend that much time. And, you know, he or she has a classroom of maybe 20 to 30 students and out of those 20 to 30 students, they're at 20 to 30 different learning stages. Right. And then you've got some students that are dealing with like massive issues at home with their families and whatnot are having a horrible time learning and are potentially disruptive because of things that they might not have a lot of control over. Yeah. Then you have other students that just can't wait to learn. And then you have some students which are, are more apathetic and some which are more have greater aptitude. Like that's what your teacher is dealing with. Like I'm sympathetic to the teacher trying to make yeah. this work within a government run system. Okay, but that's what that's why your teacher has to have like eight hours a day to do all that. You don't need that when you're teaching one, two, three kids. Well, how how many hours on average a day have y'all spent with your kids homeschooling individually? It, it, it varies. It, it varies. In the beginning, it was maybe five hours, okay, roughly. Um, and then it once they were able to read and follow directions themselves right. and and self start it would even be less maybe 3 hours wow. well now they're in high school yeah. and most of it um you know their school day does take longer yeah. but the parental involvement is more okay i just need to help them with this right. yeah. math concept or whatever it is you're there as a support uh, not oh, sure. as a lot of it is is they're they're going through they're going through kind of a self-paced system right which again what that is what that ends up meaning is when your when your child really excels within a particular topic they're not stuck with 29 other students that might not be excelling on that topic yeah and when they're struggling with the topic they're not stuck with 29 other students that have already gotten and moved on and left them right behind. and so yeah. so now what it is is as, as a parent you're able to better use your time more efficiently so that's step one step two is the financial component again i i get how for some people they look at it as like i, I still got to be home for this and right. we need two incomes and and for some people that's absolutely true for other people i'm just going to say it it's not I, I, one of the things that really irritates me is people will look at well, well you guys were just so privileged to be able to do this Oh, you don't think there was sacrifice involved with with living off of one income, supporting a family yeah. of five, oftentimes also supporting other, you know, at times helping out with other family. You don't think there was sacrifice involved to make that decision? I can promise you that there was, but it was worth it. Mm -hmm. So figure out. Figure, okay. Okay. Yeah. So let's say a parent's not at the point of pulling their kids out yeah. of the public school system or homeschooling or finding another option. 
how do you have this conversation? You have to be actively engaged with your kids about what is going on within their school. And, and it's not good enough to sit down at dinner once or twice a week and say, how was your day? Right. Like it's something where you actually got to pull out sometimes meaningful conversations because a lot of times if, if your student, if, like if you've raised your student within a certain worldview where now it's being essentially under assault within the public school system, whether it's coming directly from the curriculum or whether it's subtle or whether it's just coming from the peers – within the school system, yeah. you've got to be able to have those conversations with them. You've got to be able to understand where they're coming from. A lot of times parents have this attitude of, I didn't raise you that way. Well, I got news for you. You're not the only one raising your kid. Sure. That's, right. And in, in fact, yeah. in fact, if, if they're, if they're at a school system that is, is pushing stuff like this and all their peers or a significant number of their peers believe this stuff for six to seven to eight hours a day, and, and you get them for, I mean, they, yeah, they may be sleeping at the house, but how often are you having in-depth conversations with them or, or sharing understanding that you yeah. have with them? So this idea of I didn't raise you that way, well, again, I'm sorry, there's somebody else also helping to raise them at this point. The truth is, in a lot of situations, you did not raise them once they went to school. I mean, you. this is, this is the hard part is... When your child is there for that many hours of the day and you maybe get 45 minutes with them in a day, that's it's it's not just that the time. has ramifications. It's not just the time. It's, it's the also, type of time. It, well, it's not even just that. It's because I, I was in public school yeah. not that long ago. It was 10 years ago that I graduated high school. And I still, you know, I, I'd like to say that I have a pretty clear memory of, of what my high school and middle school years were like. And I, I just want to say that, like, as a high schooler or middle schooler, you can relate more to your classmates than you do your parents yeah. in many respects because they're your your age. They they know the same memes as you. They play the same games as you. Yeah. They grew up in the same environment and and experienced the same technolo uh, technological changes as you. They remembered the same historical events as you. I had when I was 15, I had way more in common with my 15 year old classmates than I did my boomer parents. They weren't actually boomers, yeah. but like <laughs> I, I just did. Like I, I could make a reference to something, yeah, or talk about a TV show or an internet meme or something like that. And my, again, my friends would understand it. My parents didn't understand. Well, can any I, can of I that. say this? Can I say this though? When, when, one of the issues with that is when, especially when our kids were younger. Um, we really built because we didn't have cable and it wasn't because we were like anti-television, although some parents are and God bless them. Right. Like I don't got a problem with that, but we had more, we wanted to have more control over what they were consuming mm -hmm. when they were a small child. We, yeah. we didn't want, I didn't want to go to bed and have my kid turn on the cable television because they snuck out at two in the morning and, and watch something I didn't want to watch in. Yeah. Right. We had controls with respect to social media, with respect to internet access, with respect to all of that. We still do. I remember the first time we got our kids, like when our, when our kids got to a certain age where, especially when they could drive and things like that, but even earlier that when they were going places and we wanted to be able to communicate with them, we made it really clear to our kids, like you don't get like, that is not your phone. That is my phone. And if I want to check that phone, I'm checking my phone. If I want to check that laptop, I'm checking it because it's mine. It's not yours that we set in those boundaries, but we also expressed that this wasn't some sort of tyrannical thing that we were doing yeah. to them. It was the, I'm doing this because I love you and I want to protect you. And because, you know, and, and because you also need to understand a certain level of respect. Whenever I watch one of these shows where the kid slams the door and says, respect my privacy. I'm like, I'll look at my kids and be like, uh, yeah, daddy would take the door off. Oh, be, and, and it's, and again, <laughs> you'll, you'll be changing in the bathroom. From it's now not on. because I'm a tyrant, right? It's because, Kids need to understand a proper respect 
for the fact that they're at a stage in life where they are being completely supported by somebody else, right. their parents, hopefully their parents, right? And and we have an obligation to protect them. And ideally, but, but, you but ra- what it also does, what it also does when you when you are so like we sat down there when our kids were little, we watched Little House on the Prairie. We watched like I Love Lucy. We watched Gilligan's Island. We watched the Andy Griffith Show. We watched this stuff with our kids. We watched and and what we, it, we watched a lot of BBC miniseries. Yeah, we watched miniseries <laughs> like Jane Austen adaptations, Pride and Prejudice. Since what it did was at the same time that my kids were developing relationships with kids their own age and cultural references, they were also developing that with us. And, and so, I think that's and important so there were, to there foster were things, that relationship. There were things that were cultural references that their friends didn't know, but we did know. Yeah. So there was remarks that they would make where their friends would go, what? And they'd come home and be like, oh, I, I said this. I'm like, oh, did they get it? That no. might be, like, honestly, that might be a topic for a future podcast because I feel like as somebody who is a younger millennial, yeah. I feel like that there's a lot of parents out there that never fostered that type of relationship yeah. with their children. And now that their children are in their 20s, or 30s, their parents feel so disconnected. Like, like it's just a yeah. chasm. It's, it's between worse them. now than ever because Gen Z humor is nothing. Unless like. you understand Gen Z humor, yeah. it, you, it, you don't develop an understanding of it unless you experience. That's what. It. That's one thing. I my kids. My kids are a little bit older now, and there is some like there is some of that humor where I'm like, why is this funny? <laughs> they, yeah. But those we'll actually have that conversation. Yeah. It and, also speaks to the idea that if you're only uh, surrounded by people in your own generation, you're isolated yeah. from other. Yeah. It, it is cultural isolation. When I was growing up, I was around people my age, my grandparents, yeah. my parents, people at church, and I feel like I got a really well. Yeah, to be experience. able to communicate with people that are quite a bit older than you or younger than you, that's that is something that's being well well rounded. Yeah. But when you're just so isolated within your own generation that you have no frame of reference for other generations, that causes the generations to be pitted against each other. Well, and I think I mean to kind of wrap this up because we you know the whole the whole point of this episode was to talk about you know what what was going on with these student walkouts and how there's been a lot of influence within the schools. Speaking of that, I've got a a question or two that I want to ask you to okay. help wrap it up. Um so going back to what I was saying earlier about how you can't vote your way out of it. I yeah. think that the best example of this is the lines that the left uses when people talk about this, right? And they say you're transphobic yeah. or you're homophobic. And I I actually wrote something on Facebook like a year ago. I'm not going to read it because it's way too long. I'm just going to read the last line. (laughs) And I say, "Um, politicians are usually among the first to accurately identify which way the cultural winds are blowing. And they will inevitably bow to the collective worldview of the people that elect them, even if they don't always vote for every single agenda item that encompasses that worldview. But rather than realize the urgency of the looming disaster that lays before them, conservatives in America are utterly missing the forest for the trees. They're more worried about single issues than they are the literal collapse of Western civilization. There is no way that you can vote your way out of this. Voting doesn't reverse a cultural trend. It inevitably realizes it. And I really do yeah, feel I like, like that. that last line. Yeah, I do too. I, I, I really do feel like that this quasi-religious response that the left gives you, it's a defense mechanism. When you voice any objection to what is going on based on anything we've talked about today— and in the heart of it is the whole 
you're exphobic, right? Yeah. You're transphobic, you're homophobic, you're, I mean, you could get into other things too. You're but, racist, but in, you're yes. bigoted. Let me ask you a question playing off of that, Christian. Nick, what do you say to someone that accuses you of being homophobic or transphobic? The first thing I would do, and, and again, you've always got to, you've always got to look at this from the standpoint of what sort of environment I am and who am I talking with? Yeah. If someone is screaming at you, you're homophobic on the side of the street because you know, whatever you, you believe in traditional marriage, that's probably not someone you're going to have a rational conversation with. But what's interesting is your kids are now a lot of times in an environment where they're, they will be taught that not agreeing with something means you're homophobic. And I think one of the most important things you can do is say, what does phobia mean? Ask them, what does phobia yeah. mean? Okay. My guess let's, let's, is they would say you're against it. So, and they might very well say that, but that's not what it means, right? And that this is one of the this is one of the most important things about taking back language, and saying that look, the language, the term doesn't belong to you, and it doesn't belong to me. The language means what it means, and when you say phobic, what you're saying is you have an irrational fear, and so my response is always, but I don't have a fear, and what I'm saying is not irrational. So why are you calling? Why are you accusing me of something? Why are you misdiagnosing me of something? Is that to foster a good conversation or is it to shut it down? Because I think we all know what it is. In fact, I would say if you're someone, if you're someone that's going around accusing everybody that disagrees with you of a phobia, when they've demonstrated none of the characteristics of a phobia, who's the one engaging in a demonstration of irrational fear? It's the person lashing out and name calling the other person. So I, I think it's I think it's one of the strangest dichotomies here is a lot of times the people that are screaming the loudest about you're this phobic or you're that phobic. Well, no, they're the ones displaying an irrational fear of something by constantly denigrating and engaging in ad hominem attack in order to shut you up. Because if they just sat there for a second, they would recognize something. I don't have an irrational fear of homosexuals or trans uh, or people identify as is uh, transsexual. I don't have an irrational fear of them. We have different truth claims, and we can have a conversation about those truth claims, and that can be rooted in our moral philosophy. It can be rooted in practical examples throughout history or the way we live our lives. It can be looked at empirically through the various data that we have with respect to how this sort of behavior or identification manifest itself in the real world and the results of it. We can have all those conversations without once demanding that the other person be punished or compelled to behave a certain way through government action. But if every time I want to have that discussion, you instantly say you're transphobic, you're homophobic, or you're whatever phobic, what I'm going to come to the conclusion is maybe the one just demonstrating irrational fear is you and not me. And maybe we need to have a deeper conversation on why have you been taught to have this irrational fear? Why have you been taught to instantly shut down debate anytime there's a question about this? Why is it that your worldview is so fragile that it cannot possibly accept any sort of criticism or scrutiny even? And then you take the conversation from there. Because I think at the end of the day, what we're seeing take place right now is kind of like this, this mindless obedience to a particular way of thinking for which there are, are quickly becoming social, academic, and economic consequences if you don't toe the party line. And here's what I've seen. 
once you have fairly significant, once the left, and, and, I, and I say this on the left, and it's not to say that it can't happen on the right, but the left tends to use the government as the primary mechanism to bring about the change that they want. So once they've got the social conditions they want, right, and that's the, if you don't think this way, you will be socially ostracized. Once they have the academic consequences they want, which is to say that if you don't regurgitate this or write the paper you want, you'll fail this class. Once they have the economic consequences, which is if your business isn't set up the proper DEI or ESG qualifications, if you don't have the, the proper um, mindset, then we'll deprive you of capital or we'll fire you if you don't agree with this particular approach. The next step is legal consequences. Yep. It, it, it never stops with social, academic, and economic consequences because, again, in, in, in leftist philosophy, the government tends to prim be the primary mechanism for how we cure social ills. Yeah, everything within the state, nothing outside of it. So at some point, you're going to find yourself being legally punished for doing this. And, and until, we can get a, until we can get a grasp on this idea and until conservatives can learn, um, <laughs> I'll finish it up with this. I was I was talking to I was talking to a group the other night and I said you know what's fascinating to me is that we're at a stage right now where conservatives refuse to speak up, and oftentimes when they do they don't speak well. Let's be honest, they have to get better about articulating their viewpoints. But a lot of conservatives don't speak up, and the reason why they don't is not because they've been threatened. It's not that their life has been threatened. It's not that their job has been threatened. It's not that their family's been threatened. The only thing they've been threatened with is embarrassment. If you stand up and you say this, we will embarrass you. We will ostracize you. We will make you feel small and little and stupid. And that's been enough to shut them up. And as, you know, the psychologist, um, Dr. Uh, Anthony, uh, I think it was Anthony Daniel said, he goes by the pen name Theodore Dalrymple. His quote was, when you get when you can, First get people to remain silent and then to repeat what they know to be obvious lies, you make them a party to evil. And a nation of emasculated liars is easy to control. And that's the concern right now. And I think we're seeing it being pushed at younger and younger ages. And while I certainly bear no ill will, I have no hatred or animosity for people that identify within the LGBTQ community by the same token we can have a disagreement and you don't have to assume that it's based off of some sort of rational fear. And if that is the starting point of your assumption, whenever we have a disagreement, I'm going to start to wonder where the irrational fear really lies. All right. Thank you for joining us on this episode. We went through a lot of tough and weighty topics on this one. Please let us know what your thoughts were in the comments section. And uh, also consider joining the volley chat where we're yep. always able to have a more in-depth conversation. We have instructions for that in the notes. Once again, thank you for joining us and we will see you next time. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.